Hey there, I'm Brad Feld, co-host of the Give First podcast, along with David Cohen. In this podcast, we talk about mentors and entrepreneurs in the startup world and discuss the concept of Give First, which means being willing to help other people without an expectation of return. It's not altruism. You do expect to get something back, but you just don't know when, from whom, and what consideration over what time period. Stay tuned for some great stories from some outstanding entrepreneurs about how making Give First makes great entrepreneurship possible. And now, before we really get started, the legal stuff, spoken really quickly. The following discussion is an expression of personal opinion does not represent the opinion of Techstars or any company we discuss. Our conversation is for informational purposes only, including any mention of securities or funds. This is not legal, business, investment, or tax advice, and it's not intended for use by any investor. Certain of Techstars funds own or may own in the future securities in some of the companies discussed in this podcast. This is not in tiny little print at the bottom of the advertisement on your TV set, because it's a podcast. Welcome to the Give First podcast. This is Brad Feld. I'm here today with Semel Shaw, a GP at Haystack and a venture partner at Lightspeed and a longtime friend. Hey, Semel. Hey, Brad. Good to hear your voice. Super glad to have you on the podcast today. Super glad to have you on the podcast today, not the podcast. <laughs> Why don't we get started by just giving a quick, I don't know, 60-second overview of who you are and what you're doing today. Sure. So I'm in the Bay Area. I run a seed fund called Haystack, which I started about six years ago. And I have the luxury of also being a venture partner at a large fund, uh, Lightspeed Venture Partners. And I got into the business. I had an interest in venture and I knew a lot of VCs because they were reading my writing while I was working at startups. And I started a small little fund because no VC firm that I knew would hire me. And that turned out to be a very auspicious coming together or origin story and two things happened. I, I loved doing the work of just meeting people early and helping them early. And I got really fortunate in, you know, the time of the, the cycle that I was a part of. And so it turned into a career at the same time of building a family, you know, got married and have kids. And so feel very lucky to be here. That, that first Haystack fund was 2013. Is that right? 2013. Yeah, it was a million dollars. There were a lot of things about, you know, fund mechanics and fund terms that I just didn't know existed, but I knew a lot of startups and I knew a lot of VCs at that time. So yeah. What was it like raising that first million dollar fund? You know, Hey, I'm Semmel, I'm a VC, uh, but I need some money. How how did that play? It took a while to raise a million dollars. Now, if I look back on it, it's sort of humorous. But I I did know on one hand, a lot of VCs like you who knew me very well, who were willing to, you know, pump back money into the ecosystem and do 25 or 50K. So I was very fortunate to have those relationships already. And then I knew a lot of founders who had been successful before or who wanted to also contribute to the ecosystem that way. So I think being here helped a lot. And then people knew me at least for a couple of years. So that familiarity helped it, but it still took eight months. So a lot of your early reputation came from, I would say, a combination of writing and sort of your commentary on the startup ecosystem and everything that was going on, combined with just your sort of accessibility, at least from where I sat. What were some of the magic tricks that you used early on to sort of get known and be known throughout the different networks that you were developing? You know, I think people on the outside may think that there was a certain magic or formula to it. 
I think if it, it was not intentional at all, even though that might be hard for people to realize, I think that there is a gift of like being able to analyze and th synthesize and put it into written word very quickly, like in the same way you have that gift. And I think it was at a special time when you have Quora, people reading TechCrunch, you know, people didn't understand what Twitter was going to turn into for all the good things and all the bad things. And so I was just taking my environment and translating that into statements that other people found value in. And I think the key was like, I was just very consistent and I didn't try to pontificate. I was trying to learn in public, which is just a personality thing. And I think the consistency and the tone probably made people more comfortable with me. So it sort of slowly snowballed over a number of years. Who are some of the early people on that journey that you feel like you were learning a lot from this sort of learn in public? You know, you write something, you put yourself out there, and then you get some feedback either directly or indirectly. Maybe give a couple of examples of how that really moved you along the journey. Yeah, I would say that there were, in the context of doing a fund, there were three people in the beginning actually five people in the beginning who really spent a lot of time with me and that those people should get credit. So it was Nicole Mandan, who's also a partner now at Lightspeed. He was then at Battery and Gotham Gupta, who was at the time at General Catalyst, started a company called Nature Box and is now at M13. They pulled me up at a moment where I was trying to compete for a real VC job, quote unquote, and I didn't get the last one and sort of encouraged me to start a fund. So that was just a huge kind of pick up and push, if you know what I mean. And then there were three people who were all individual, sorry, two of the three were individual LPs in my first fund, but just would constantly pick up the phone and text me back and help me. So that was in no particular order. Maurice Wordegar, who's the president of WTI, who's invested in a lot of small funds. Glenn Solomon, who's a managing director at GGV. And then Chris Duvos, who, who is now at Ahoy Capital, who was at the time at VIA Funds. BIA. And um, they just spend an insane amount of time with me. And I'm super grateful. You know, a lot of what I've learned and philosophically come from those three people. When you think about the context of mentorship and Give First, obviously, that group was really helping you out. Yeah. You know, in some cases, they were in investing some money in your in your fund. But yeah. what, what do you think, knowing them really well, what do you think their individual motivations for helping you so much were? Well, I think it's a mix of you know, self-interest, but also just the mentality in the startup ecosystem. So there's the obvious self-interest of like, you know, deal flow moves through trusted relationships and you hear about things and obviously that's there. But I think that if I were to isolate the non-obvious thing is, is I think people who in the startup ecosystem who have that knowledge and that wisdom, if they see somebody coming to them whose intentions are pure and they want to learn and put in the work and they're not motivated by something greater than just learning and helping. I think that I found that there were a lot of people willing to help. At the same time, I saw a lot of people who were, let's say, hungrier for different reasons or trying to make a certain type of investment or get a certain type of return or a certain type of salary. I think those people are met with a little more friction there's a little bit more friction in the mentorship because people might be sort of innately turned off by that kind of motion. I think that's well said. From the outside looking in, 2019 in the Bay Area is pretty different than 2013, 2014 in the Bay Area. Two different questions. The first is, 
from your frame of reference, what's changed? And the second is, when you think about 2019, how have you had to change your behavior to be able to be relevant and effective given you know, the massive explosion of early stage venture funds? Well, luckily, someone just before lunch asked me the same question because they were going to a luncheon and they wanted to have three talking points of what to say before what's <laughs> happening in seeds. So well, they, they emailed me that question <laughs> too, so that's where it came from. So what I, what I told this person as they were leaving my office is, number one, it's all, all the work that Samir Kanji is do, uh, Kaji is writing from First Republic on Medium about tracking the number of seed funds, you know, exponential proliferation of seed funds and new company creation 2019 in the Bay Area versus 2013. It's, it's not a linear thing. It's, it feels like an explosion. I think number two is that the, the headroom, you know, people, I, I like to say, we, we now know what the stakes are. So if I had met Brad Feld in 2009 and we were talking about Zoom or Slack or Snapchat, we wouldn't really have a concept of a global install base like the Carlotta Perez stuff. We would be able to think about it academically. But now I think we all know what the stakes of like building an Airbnb or Uber are and the the thing of the network effects. And so a lot of the money, a lot of money around the world has moved into the Bay Area to have that option call on the economics of software. Right. And then I think the third thing is that the larger funds, the larger platform funds, and in particular, you know, think of the best performing franchise, Sequoia, I think, and I can't speak for them, but I think that they are thinking that, hey, in the rise of the seed funds and the seed rounds happening over the last couple of years where a number of angels, operators, small funds have caught more of these, an increasing share of the larger outcome companies. And then they have power in diverting the traffic. The larger funds are, are more willing to come down and go multi-stage and compete at seed A, B. They have multiple shots on goal with certain companies. And so it's very competitive. And so the second part of your question, what have I done to, to compete in that way is one, you know, stay ground truth to first principles about like not being influenced about who else likes something and just trusting my own intuition around a market or, or even just the person and their affect. Two is like, as we built Haystack into a more institutional fund, we have a CFO, COO who essentially almost works full time for us. And I have a senior associate and new grad college associate who helped me filter. And like we vigorously debate every investment decision as sort of like putting a devil's advocate on everything. So really been focusing on selection and staying as disciplined as possible. When you go back to the that first fund that you raised in 2013, and I, I think you're on fund four, fund five now, fund five, right? We just closed fund five a few months ago and are about to open it in within weeks. And that's about 50 times bigger than your first fund. It's about correct? 50 times bigger. If you could go back and tell yourself anything in 2013 about what you wish, you know, Hey, hey, younger self, you should really do this differently. What would be on that list? It's very tactical, Brad. It would be to to actually build up a facility to do SPVs because when you have that relationship with the entrepreneur early and they're starting to take off and you have their back early, they will have your back to do SPVs and those can be really accretive. I think two would, would have been to earlier build relationships with LPs of fund earlier, I started to build them in fund three. 
and started to get like tougher feedback around fund three, but I really should have started to do that in fund two, but I was just sort of a dog chasing cars at that point. But those would be the two things. You got into a, when I look, when I look at the deal list that you have, you got into some pretty epic deals at this point as one of the very first investors. I mean, companies like Carta and Giphy and maybe they call it Jiffy because they like to speak that way or HashiCorp. How did some of those happen? Maybe tell a story or two about it. Yeah, I would say that, you know, a lot of LPs will ask this question too. And what I found is that the source of that great deal or, or a good deal that's forming is pretty random. And so there's no pattern. I can tell the one story that I like to tell is um, around HashiCorp because that was really just like getting hit by a bolt of lightning. This company has just incredibly strong technical and financial fundamentals going for it. And so the seed round was just a really close friend of mine. He said he has this person working on his engineering team who's a genius. He might have been 19 or 20 at the time. And he said, can you help him out? Because he wants to kind of turn his open source project into a company. And he's just trying to think about the right way to do it. And so I met him three times. This is before I even thought about raising a fund. And I just remember how brilliant he was in the meetings. And it wasn't like I understood the technology, but just the way he carried himself, the way he even took notes. And like, I remember his like graph, his graph lined notepad and he was left-handed. And I was like, I can't believe this kid is 19 or 20. And so when he started to raise this round, I just remember saying, save a little room for me, save a little room for me. And I'm proud of that because I just had dinner with him three weeks ago and we're like buddies. And I helped him a lot early because there were a lot of ups and downs in the company. But I was proud of myself for like, without knowing much about technology at that time, understanding that he was special in some way. And so, you know, credit to my friend Courtney, who introduced him to me. And Courtney and I were the only two small investors in the round. You're now one of the OGs from the beginning of the Cambrian explosion of early stage or seed and pre-seed funds. Yeah. Now that there's, I mean, I don't know what number you were, but maybe it was, you know, 25 funds around the time that, that uh, you had started yours that were all sort of in this 2012, 2013, 2014 timeframe. And I think it's 2014 when things really started to take off. Today, there's what, a thousand or plus, just in the U.S., uh, of the seed and pre-seed funds. What do you do to help some of the new people that are starting funds today? How do you think about that? Do you view them as competition? Do you view them as, as good for the ecosystem, part of the network that you're building? Just some thoughts on that. Yeah. So I do think from Samir's research, I think when he meant a thousand funds in market, that's across venture stages. So I don't know if there are that many pre-seed and seed funds. The problem is most of those funds are doing pre-seed and seed. The way I think about it is, is kind of like how I've been using Twitter and how you and I got to know each other is if I feel like like Glenn and Chris and Maurice felt with me, if I feel like people are coming to me with good intentions, they want to put in the work, they're learning, and they're willing to not complain about how difficult it is, and I can share with them something I'm learning in real time, I get a lot of joy out of that. And so I have two to four people like that come by my office every week. The other thing I'm doing, and I haven't published this yet, but it's more of an evergreen thing, I'm writing a huge kind of pamphlet just on what I've learned around fund management and curating sources so that, you know, how many times, Brad, have people come to you and said, Brad, can you teach me portfolio construction, right? 
it's just a kind of difficult topic for someone who's not native to this to learn, and I found it to be one of the most challenging ones. So at some point, we're going to publish this and do some education around it. And there may be other things in the works later on that may coalesce that I can't really talk about. But, you know, I find it a fascinating ecosystem to be a part of. And I also find as I'm, you know, when someone comes through my office and says, teach me about reserves, and, and I'm still learning, just through that discussion, it reinforces my own learning. So, yeah, I spend a lot of time doing that and a lot of time helping people raise their funds and sharing fun deal flow with other LPs that I've met, uh, doing a conference around it every November called the Alignment Summit, which is a private event about 50 GPs and 50 LPs, all in kind of like a no-pitch zone. So I've, I've really spent a lot of time on that. I'm really interested in the thing that you can't talk about. So do you want to talk about the thing you can't talk about soon? Well, no, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just, <laughs> um, on a more serious note, one of the things that you've always done as part of your own development is worked closely, either like the role that you have right now with venture partner at Lightspeed or with a couple of other firms like GGV in the past, how have those relationships worked for you? And would you encourage other, you know, first time new entrance into the VC market to try to develop relationships like that? Well, definitely you have to have those relationships. So it, I think it's hard to get in the business and write a meaningful check if you don't. That said, I do have a lot of people knocking on my door and asking me, how do I do what you do? The number one question I get is, how do I use Twitter or write like you do? And is this sort of like a very hard question to answer because it's a personal thing? People will ask more tactically, like, hey, how do I do my own fund and be a venture partner in another fund? And I just don't think it's something, for better or worse, that it's easy to do. It's worth me mentioning how this started. When you dial the clock back to the end of 2012, and I thought I was going to get some VC role that I really wanted, and that, that fell through, I was consulting with a lot of VC firms because they had known me from the writing. So I'd spent years knowing, getting to know these people and doing like little projects for them. So my friends Knuckle and Gotham were like, look, raise a small fund and just be a venture partner with one of those funds. So I did that with Bullpen. I was a venture partner with the Bullpen guys for a couple of years. And then as I was starting to raise the third fund, GGV approached me. Now, all the managing directors of GGV had all been personal investors in all my funds. So they, they just said, hey, you know, you're, I'm sure you're getting GP offers now. Keep doing what you're doing and come here. And so I spent every Monday with them for three years. And then I got a call from Lightspeed. And so I think for me, just the learning curve was so steep because I don't come from the technology world and I don't come from the world of finance and money management that I felt that just sitting down with these people on Monday, whether it's bullpen, GGV or Lightspeed, you know, all very different personalities, different styles of investing, different geographies, was kind of like an amazing training ground through kind of osmosis for me to learn. And so it's been very fortunate. Now, I, I think that that happened in a very organic way where the ecosystem didn't really care about me or didn't care that I was doing this fund and also being a venture partner. Maybe now they care a little bit more that the fund is becoming more institutional or Lightspeed is you know sort of seen as like one of these tier one brands given their success. And so now people are saying, oh, well, should I do that and how I can do that? And I think it's really hard because you have to have a lot of relationships at that fund to start because, as you know, these partner meetings are very personal in some ways. 
And you have to have that cone of silence, that trust, that ability not to share information that you're not supposed to share, how to add value with a minimal amount of words. And so you have to have the trust of a lot of people in the room, and that's a hard thing to earn. Well, as we're uh, hitting the end of the podcast time, why don't we shift into the Harry Stebbings-inspired rapid-fire round? I love it. Ready to go? Ready. 30-second answers to each question. Number one, other than the Bay Area or San Francisco or any other cities in the Bay Area, what's your favorite city in the world? Tie between New York and London. Why? Because I feel like when I go there, it's like an escape and everyone's anonymous and everything's open 24 hours a day and the variety. I love it. How about a book you've read recently that you think everybody should read? This is, uh, I'm embarrassed to say I have not read a book in a long time, but the last book I bought and I was not gifted this was Jerry's reboot book. And I'm taking the kids to the lake next week. And that's the one book I'm taking with. Enjoy my favorite books of 2019 from Jerry Kalana. And I'm going to, I'm going to dog ear it, like he said, and then pass it on to somebody. Perfect. How about charity or nonprofit that you'd urge people to get involved with and why? As a family, we just typically donate to the SPCA. I'm just a... Woof. Yeah. Woof. Like you, I'm just a huge animal person. Huge. We don't have dogs yet. My wife is saying until the kids can clean up after them, we're not going to have them. But uh, <laughs> I, I kind of like dogs more than a lot of people. <laughs> Back at you, brother. If you could have dinner with anyone on the planet, dead or alive, who would it be? Ooh... I think it would be Led Zeppelin, mm. only because I feel, I, I'm a huge music nerd, and I feel like they were at a time, and when I was listening to them, just to hear them talk about like how certain songs came together, there's a great YouTube clip of uh, Jimmy Page uh, teaching a bunch of people how he built the initial chords of um, Kashmir, and so I just kind of love that stuff. Samuel, thanks for the time today. It's awesome having you on the Give First Podcast. Thank you so much, Brad, for making the time. Thanks for listening to the show today. We'd love to hear your feedback, ideas, or any person that you'd love to hear from on Give First. Please also leave us a rating and review and reach out to us at podcasts at techstars.com, where you can reach me on Twitter at bfeld. See you next time. And don't forget to always give first.